Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going still, Ed. It's still going. Mm-hmm. It's been a weird sort of week for me or, or kind of like an approach of weeks because it'll be the anniversary of my mum's death um, mm-hmm. in September but also her birthday and it's coming up to two years and that's just you know, wrapping my head around that is very strange. And I'm just feeling very grateful for the things that I that I have. And I don't mean to do this in the whole like, therefore, everyone should have a gratitude journal and stop, you know, <laughs> stop complaining, mm-hmm. keep complaining, keep rioting. And um, that's the only way anything's ever going to get better. But I was just thinking also like how much I appreciate that we're doing that, that, that we're doing shot reverse shot in lockdown because I was like oh it's Sunday like it's time to talk to Ed <laughs> about a different mm. subject from week to week so yeah I appreciate you pal um oh thank you very much <laughs> I've realized I haven't said that in a while and I just wanted to say and yeah I'm putting it on the fucking record so everyone else can hear <laughs> I'm not trying to show off but it's true how are you you've had a busy week I have I appreciate you as well oh should yeah. definitely say that on the record as well. Yeah. And uh, yes, I've had a busy, busy, busy week. The game that I work on is out in some form um, in the world. People are starting to play it. It's been very exciting and stressful because <laughs> this is the first year that obviously we're all having to make it working from home and always very difficult to make it and make sure it hits deadlines and things like that it's especially difficult when everyone's kind of like thrown to the winds and trying to do it all remotely and everyone's unsure about how things are going so for it to be out there and just so far things have things been reasonably good and and you know things going fairly smoothly with it has been a great relief but uh, there were some long hours this week and I did get a little bit discombobulated on, on Wednesday where I literally had no idea what day of the week it was. Oh, Ed. Yeah. The, uh, the combination of working from home and working long hours yeah. <laughs> can just kind of like screw with your mind a little bit, which is, you know, like not, not great, but, you know, I, I've had a weekend off, which is nice. Uh, I've been able to kind of like decompress from it all. Uh, but yeah, it's been... It's been a, a full week, a full week, yeah. <laughs> Emily. Um, it's been a real year of a week. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I, I did manage to uh, fit in a few things culturally. Um, oh. I started rereading Don DeLillo's End Zone, which is a oh. novel about a high school football team that I think he wrote in the 70s and I read probably about 10 years ago. I remember reading it in a... Barnes and Noble uh, on holiday and not paying for it, as was my want <laughs> back when I uh, was, you know, a student or post, just immediately post university. That was kind of how I read things. If I couldn't really afford it, I would go in, buy a coffee, and just sit and read a book in a single sitting, or or read as as I did when I was like sixteen, where I read all of Akira by going into a Borders and just kind of like <laughs> plopping myself yeah. down for seven hours and just reading all of it. Um, so this time, actually owning the book, admittedly a secondhand copy of it, it's been really cool revisiting it and seeing just how much of it 
how I've remembered, which uh, is is a kind of like a few things. The only thing about it that really stood out to me because I remember talking to someone back when we worked at the showroom, Colin, who used to work on the box office at the showroom, yes. and he was a, a big Don DeLillo fan. I remember talking to him about it at the time, and and there's this whole thing where the point of view character is talking to someone who is a like a linebacker who's three hundred pounds, and he's been told he needs to lose twenty five pounds to be kind of like better. And they have this exchange where he says, you know, you know, sure you'll be a better football player at two hundred seventy five pounds, but you'll be a greater man at three hundred pounds. And talking about like the enormity of this guy being three hundred pounds and his life experience of being just this Goliath, which just really stuck with me for some reason. Like it's such a uh, an interesting philosophical discussions be having in a book that you would think is just going to be about you know plays or whatever you know like different methods of attacking games and it's been really fun revisiting it also in the last 10 years I've learned a lot more about American football for professional reasons Mm. and (laughs) so I understand a lot of the lingo a lot more (laughs) and so when they're describing plays or practice or things like that i'm like oh right okay oh. I, get, I get what they're laying down <laughs> all of this means cool uh, and i also started reading uh rick perlstein's uh, reaganland his oh. fourth book on the history of the conservative movement in america following his books on barry goldwater richard nixon and uh the ford presidency and that's been uh, really really great so far i'm really looking forward to tearing through all 800 or whatever pages it is because it's it's a hefty tome but uh, he's such an engaging writer i always enjoy seeing what he has to say about that period of history and so much has happened in american history just over the last couple of years as well i think probably be interesting to see how he draws out those parallels because he's always very you know he's not just constantly pointing out parallels in his writing but he is someone who's very able to kind of like draw out you know key details that you know have some sort of echo or resonance in the years to come Mm. Uh, and yeah i think he's probably going to find a lot of that (laughs) in the carter presidency and the rise of reagan yeah all the big dialect dialectical that's right isn't it dialectical stuff interesting what about you what have you been up to culturally i mean well i did i did submerge myself in the and no guilt but you know what i mean we, we need to figure a, a sort of a cringy pleasure. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. My cringy pleasure. A wincing pleasure. A wincing uh, pleasure. <laughs> I like that. My, my wincing pleasure was Fatal Affair, mm. which is the cinematic equivalent of Ron Seal. And <laughs> I really respect it for that. So it's on Netflix. And when the little kind of trail um, first popped up, I was just like, hell yes. I could not click my list fast enough um because it is that kind of heavy air quote erotic thriller that sort of made for tv 80s 90s style i mean it looks quite slick but it is just absolutely by the numbers i'm not entirely unconvinced that an algorithm didn't write it mm-hmm. and you know a lifetime movie as we all know ed is not just for christmas it can be for like anything and and a netflix original now apparently it's got omar epps in it and i it's just funny because i'm like omar i haven't seen you since house what's been happening <laughs> um but the thing that is actually quite novel about it ed and possibly not progressive as such but at the very least refreshing it is a majority cast of people of color mm. and to see something that a genre and a version that has been so 
it's just it's just been white people, isn't it? And mm. and I love a prop like I love the sort of eighties like single white female and hand that rocks the cradle like all that kind of stuff, and that is I think again. It is sort of this idea of like it's not full blown satire, but it is testing the water of like, oh, you know, so this picture of white American suburbia, um, and that it's all these unmarried women. Ed, we're the threats. <laughs> we're the threats to the heteronormative balance, and it always comes back round to the end. And even in um, you know, Fatal Attraction, but no, Fatal Affair, the other Fatal mm. A film uh, title that we've got. It's just. You just submerge into it like a bubble bath. It's it's just somatic and inc- just exactly what I needed to watch. And you know what? Like the performances aren't bad. Like this is something that I always really respect because I am also a, a big fan of like Lifetime biopics. Mm. In particular, anything to do with the royal family. Yeah. Oh God. I just, oh God. In terms William of William like, and Kate, I remember being oh, one of particular fascination when that came out a few years ago. The the Harry and Meghan one is something else as well because it, there's mm. it's kind of intimated that on their first night together, when when they're on, I think they're in South Africa, and they consummate their relationship. There's also this idea that there's kind of like a lion outside, and that's meant to be Diana. And I'm like, we fade away. This lion's just watching them, and I'm like, dude, your mum's watching you bang. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't this isn't sentimental and this isn't erotic like you've just missed any notes that there could possibly be in this camilla is also put forward as this like saucy aunt she's just like she just says like i love a dirty martini wink and i'm like oh my god camilla and you know i'm like she's probably it's probably not far off how she actually is and i'm just like oh you know the crown the schmown i love all of that <laughs> But, you know, in, in terms of Fatal Affair, like, it delivers on its promise. Sorry if that's a spoiler, but the title essentially is a spoiler. <laughs> and everyone is, like, really selling it because the script is dire. Like, the dialogue mm. is just so kind of... Well, it's, it's like crackers or something. It's just like you need something else on top of it. It's a vehicle for everything that's happening. You could just turn turn the sound off and it would still make sense, which to be fair, is actually like a credit to its cinematography and even just the kind of, you know, your, your shots and your, uh, your, your dynamics. But it, it, it does look very made for TV rather than a film. And, mm. oh my God, they go to this club, which is just this huge hall and everyone's like standing on this dance floor. And I'm like, what, what club have you been to where it's like, <laughs> you know, unless it's like a light, up, a light up dance floor where there's like a border around it and stuff. Like, fucking hell. Yeah, so who who needs the rest of culture i've had all of it in fatal affair this week <laughs> uh you mentioned the crown there just reminded me that uh of course it was announced this week that elizabeth debicki is going to be playing princess diana in the last season of the crown or the second to last season of the crown and i think that's great because she's a wonderful actress and she's a good choice to play Diana but also does make me wonder what visual chicanery they're going to have to do for the fact that she will just be dwarfing everyone else in that cast <laughs> if you know if, if they're going to have to start consorting wetter to yeah. really get the angles right she's just on the other end of the table they'll they'll just do a they'll gandalf it it'll be fine <laughs> that is also swooningly perfect casting though when that came out i was like oh yes well well yeah. done 
yeah, such a such a great bit of casting, you know, that show, which I've never seen a single episode of. I don't think I just know it because you know it's very popular and, and people talk about it. And the, the casting news always kind of like is the thing that bubbles up because whenever they announce it, it's like, oh yes, of course, that's yeah. Perfect choice. Like when they announced Coleman playing, you know, uh, Olivia Coleman playing uh, Queen Elizabeth in the third and fourth, I was like, yeah, obviously that's a great choice to play. Every every time they announce some new bit of casting for that show, it, it always feels like they've just gone for the exact right person regardless of anything else about the show which again haven't watched probably won't i guess the only the only point uh of casting where everyone's like huh why are you doing this to us is is gillian anderson as thatcher yeah we don't want we don't don't want that sort of conflicting feelings lots of lots of lots of confusion don't like that ed don't like that at all (laughs) but i think that takes us on to the news for this week and over the last couple of days, the DC Fandom has been going on, which is this big online event, basically, for fans of DC movies, where they've been announcing a bunch of different projects related to it, including uh, showcasing a new Batman video game called Gotham Knights, which looks very cool, where uh, Batman is dead, and you play as like, various uh, other characters kind of going around Gotham beating people up, which looks like fun. Mm. But also there was some news, including uh, a new trailer for Wonder Woman 84, which showcased a lot of Kristen Wiig's character, uh, Cheetah, which was uh, f- fun. Uh, it looks like, you know, I enjoy most of the first Wonder Woman and I like that cast. The visual style for this one looks a lot brighter because obviously those movies in the DC universe have kind of moved away from the Zack Snyder greyness and <laughs> except for just letting him recut Justice League and make it even greyer. But everyone else <laughs> seems to have decided that's not what they want to do so it looks a lot brighter and a little peppier which is uh it's quite fun to see there was also a trailer for the batman the uh matt reeves reboot starring robert pattinson in which the main villains are the riddler and the penguin played by colin farrell in a load of makeup which as everyone has said makes him just look like richard kind which seems like a missed opportunity cast richard kind you cowards He's, he, he'll do anything. He will literally do anything. Richard Kind is such an affable, lovable presence. I'm sure he would have been happy to kind of like show up and be the penguin and finally get to play someone who's not just, you know, either a complete sad sack who's been destroyed by life or just kind of like a upbeat, happy kind of like daffy figure. Yeah, he'd be... Or some, someone like, uh, I guess, the, the closest he could have done to a penguin would have been his character on Spin City where he mm. was kind of like uh you know a bit of a schemer but still like altogether like a a likable guy i think even though i've only been able to see a little uh clips of it because i don't think we actually have access to true tv here in the Mm. uk um but i just think we'll just have richard kind and amy sedaris because the clips i've seen of them together on at home with amy sedaris are just like Mm -hmm. Or Sedaris, sorry, I should. Uh, that's that's me putting my own my own dulcet tones on on things. Hor- horribly southern instead of uh, accurate. Anyway, um, Sedaris, <laughs> Sedaris, Sedaris. Let's call the whole thing off. But yeah, would you, would you not want to see Amy as the Riddler, with and then Richard oh, yeah, Kind absolutely. as the Penguin? I mean, that's just. I, I just want that show. <laughs> She's such a perfect agent of chaos. She really is. She really is, and like. I mean, I haven't seen the trailer yet, but I did see Twitter just blow up with everyone talking. It was it was kind of amazing to see like a real water cooler moment about mm. something that 
it's sort of heightened because we're in lockdown so of course everyone's kind of their attention is a bit more online <laughs> yeah basically yeah that's entirely it. everyone's just online and so it has become this kind of yeah this giant this giant water cooler moment and i it it's just quite fun because sometimes i wonder like following the comedians that i do on on twitter whether they're kind of like working stuff out and working up to it <laughs> and then when it gets released they're like oh yeah no i my my predictions came true or whether people are genuinely just that quick i'm not ed that i that i'm not that kind of comedian i need to i will i will think about laying an egg <laughs> then i'll lay it and moan about it and then i'll sit on it and it just won't want to hatch that's it joke eggs that's me <laughs> yeah but robert pattinson just looks i mean it's just an emo it's an emo haircut i'm like it looks like my chemical romance or my valentine i'm like is it gritty or is it are we are we just pining for for panic at the disco i don't know yeah i've seen so many people just quoting lyrics from welcome to the black parade (laughs) (laughs) under under screenshots of it Uh, it's quite it's quite fun seeing that literally everyone's just kind of gone to that to that well or uh welcome to the bat parade as it probably should be called (laughs) ah nice when uh, I and, was a boy, uh, my parents got shot in an alleyway, and I never knew. <laughs> <laughs> I also saw renewed appreciation for one of my favourite jokes from uh, Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which is a, a hilarious movie that I recommend to anyone who's really sick of super serious, uh, super serious comic book movies, where at one point the Teen Titans travel back in time and decide that what they want to do is just like they want to be the stars, so they're going to prevent all of their adult kind of contemporaries from being becoming superheroes and the way they do it for batman is they stop his parents being killed and when they return to their timeline and realize that everything has gone to hell because the heroes weren't around they go back and redo everything which consists of robin like putting the the pearl necklace around batman's mother's neck and then just shoving both of his parents into the alley where they get shot and it's such a funny joke to me <laughs> and such a just such a a wild choice for a movie for children but it was something that uh made me laugh uproariously the first time i saw it and when people started circulating the clip of it again i was just kind of like oh yeah this is still an excellent joke (laughs) and then the other kind of bits of uh, dc news were it was announced that ben affleck is going to play batman again which was definitely up in the air following the last two times he played him uh in flashpoint which is the flash movie where flash goes back and runs so fast he breaks time basically and then all of these different dimensions start into uh cross crossing over and they're having like affleck come back to play batman again but they're also getting michael keaton to come and play his version of batman again and rumors that michelle Pfeiffer will be back as catwoman which would be quite cool but uh, for me it's it's not going to be a true reunion until they can get Clooney back and also if they have all three of the Batmen beat the shit out of Jared Leto. Yes. <laughs> Please co-signed. <laughs> That's my dream. And and finally there was a trailer for the Snyder Cut version of Justice League, uh, which did the rounds and which was met by appreciation from all sides, I think. On the one hand, you had the, the Snyder Cut people who were just kind of like, yes, this is the movie we wanted. And you know, but then there were all the other sceptics, which were kind of like, oh my God, he used Hallelujah again after being roasted <laughs> for it for over a decade for its use in Watchmen. Well, what a, what a move, what a flex. Um, <laughs> So uh, I still have no interest in watching all four hours of that, and I don't know why anyone would, but 
I have to appreciate the the sheer gumption of thinking yeah. I'm going to do the thing that everyone made fun of me for again in a way more high profile way and in a way that makes this movie look even more grim and unpleasant than it was before. Weird flex, but okay, as you said, Ed. Carry on, Zack Snyder, you crazy diamond. Uh, one of the other stories from this week was, and this will get us into our, our Netflix block, was that there was a real kind of unfortunate furore over the movie Cuties, which is a, a French Sen- Senegalese movie about young girls who kind of become part of a dance crew, and which is a movie that explores the way in which society sexualizes young girls uh, more and more, particularly in the age of social media, and is a movie that played at Sundance and got like great acclaim and won an award at the World Cinema Award, I think, at Sundance. And it's a movie that everyone says is a very sensitive portrayal of this phenomenon and was completely obliterated by Netflix's way of publish- uh, uh, yeah, publicizing it, which was to show a poster for it which showed the young girls kind of like twerking and seemed to be you know sexualizing the young girls at the heart of the movie in a way that the movie itself was condemning and this led to you know a petition saying that Netflix should drop the movie the director Maimona Decora you know because she was tagged in the original tweet getting just loads of abuse online and having to delete her account and there was just this real horrible dogpiling onto this movie that very few people had seen the people who saw it were like all basically said yeah netflix completely fucked this with their poster and the way they're handling this and it was just a a hugely unpleasant thing to to witness occur in over really just over a couple of hours in the week so upsetting and like how painful is that sort of irony or is Mm. it irony or is it just like completely missing the point i think it's such a bad indictment on netflix in terms of taking a film that is not as far as i'm aware a netflix original produced by netflix at all but was Mm. very like very well received at sundance and you know that was a very hot acquisition to make and yet somehow the communication got to the place where no one actually knew what the film was fucking about (laughs) Mm. right down to calling it cuties instead of mignon which was the original name yeah yeah again it's this weird kind of changing everything to but for what audience because in terms of localization and things because netflix is global you'd hope that there'd be some kind of communication and cultural understanding but i mean i i have had a rant about Netflix subtitles many a time, like particularly for their own properties in terms of how it would be so much better if, if subtitles could have access to scripts and then they're not kind of shooting around in, in the dark for certain things. But, oh, it's just it's just awful, Ed. And this, like, you know, because now it's like, oh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter and one angry internet mob is a huge democratic wave of direct action. But when it comes to these mm. cultural things, it's just so, like... I mean, I just, I feel so, I feel so bad for her and for the whole team and like for those poor children as well. Like that's such a, that's such a slight on their work and what they've put together. Because thinking about other films that are very risque or like very, and not in a kind of titillating way, but I mean in a kind of actually engaging and being like, right, we're going to expose the rot of this 
of, of patriarchy and this sexualization of girls from a young age, you know, for the benefit of those in who are in, in the most powerful positions in, in society, right? Like that's and any sort of criticism or engagement or challenging of that will get so much more flack than any actual kind of I was thinking um, again this week on Instagram, Curvy Naomi or Neo. Mm. Yeah, I think it's Naomi, but it's um, her name is spelled N-Y-O-M-E. Sorry if I'm getting that wrong. Instagram, like people were reporting a photo of her semi like semi naked in an, in a very like clearly artistic sort of portrait shot. And just like kept and she kept posting it and they sort of kept trying to bring it down and so this petition was really interesting she was like essentially it's fine to be naked on instagram but not if you're a fat black body like me and mm. and again it's it's oh, it just just flumped to the max ed flumped to the max and i am really looking forward to seeing min minions as uh, as it was originally called um and it sounds a little bit like one of my favorite short films ever is sis by deborah haywood Mm. And that is incredibly close to the line, but it, it it's quite provocative, not sexually, I mean, in terms of actually, like, in terms of thoughts and things. And and I just think about Fish Tank as well. And Yeah, that was the first film yeah. I thought of when you were talking about other movies that kind of deal with that subject matter. Fish Tank's one I always think of. I adore that film so much still. Like, in terms of how that protagonist is sexual as she is a sexual being and is exploring her own sexuality but then how she's expected to be and give and what she's expected to give and in within that sexuality like i just think of that scene where she goes to like she goes to the open call for dancers and they're all exotic dancers and she's done this like beautiful dynamic routine and she's just like oh you know that's not what And I am not a, a swerf. I would like to hastily point out that's more just. I think it's a really compelling moment in that in that character's journey. That that's mm. not what she's about, and not what she's after, not what she's seeking for, and what because there's no choice there. It's just this is what's expected of you. And I just think, like God, what if like because Fish Tank has been on Netflix for a while, I think, and or at least in terms of the sort of poster um vis- visual kind of tab i don't think we'd see anything anything like that who i just who even who thinks yeah this is a good idea from this entire film we'll use this we'll use this shot and there's a very interesting article about um like from netflix i think from a little while ago in terms of trying to explain how their algorithm works with the sort of poster art in terms of each show will have like a selection of of artwork and depending on what an individual user has seen that that um content will be presented to them in a different way so for so for example if you're a user who watches a lot of romantic comedies you'll get a piece of artwork for Goodwill Hunting that shows Matt Damon and Minnie Driver. But if you watch a lot of comedies, you'll get a shot of Robin Williams. So it's the idea of like, how how can we sort of like get people into these various different properties? And when you sort of do, do the maths, 
the algorithm <laughs> maths on that, you're like, oh, this is grim that they even that they even put that up for being presented. It's just, oh, you can tell I'm you can tell I'm very sad and angry about this, Ed. Mm. Yeah, I think it also gets to the heart of one of the, the the tensions I think that Netflix has, particularly in the last couple of years, between on the one hand them trying to present themselves as these kind of like allies of cinema which you see through the Netflix film account which always tries to like post you know threads about you know films using more of an artistic language or you know really highlighting the work of certain creators or posting about filmmakers to kind of draw attention to them and then the fact that it is a content mill you know that it is kind of like pushing stuff out and there is it doesn't seem to be like an overarching vision they have like some of the stuff they they buy up at film festivals and they're just kind of like okay this is going to be the big thing we push that's going to be our you know our oscar contender this year you know this is roma it's going to be like we're going to treat it very well we're going to really kind of push for all this sort of stuff or the irishman and then other stuff is just kind of like grist to put out there it's like okay this seems like something similar to stuff we put out before so let's put this out mm. and that's where like the marketing people come in and say oh it's a movie about like little girls in a dance troupe let's use ones where it looks like they're twerking guys kind of like yeah really someone with a greater sense of what the the idea the movie is pushing should have been involved in that decision because anyone seeing that would have been very it would have been very easy to foresee this probably will not go over well on social media where you know, like you can try and have a, a nuanced conversation about a movie on there, and you know, I certainly, you know, try to have conversations like that with people wherever I can. But when you are a big account, just kind of like posting up, hey, this is the movie we've got, you know, and this is the director's, yeah. uh, <laughs> the director's handle, you know, like there's so little context around it that unless people are willing to do the work to reach into it, they're only going to get like this very flat presentation of it, and. and you know, some of that is on the people who saw it and were just instantly outraged and didn't think to kind of like look into it. But, you know, for an account that has like a reach of millions and things like that, you have to try, I think, and be very thoughtful about how you're going to present that sort of stuff out into the world. And I think clearly the people at Netflix didn't do that. Absolutely. Not, not that they deserve anything that happened and certainly not that the, the director of the movie deserved what happened to her and you know this is an absolute nightmare <laughs> this is the nightmare situation i think for someone you know where you make your film it gets picked up at sundance after winning an award and you think oh my god it's going to be available worldwide and get this huge distribution that it could never have hoped for if it went for a, a theatrical release and then just to get absolutely torn to pieces on social media but you know hopefully it'll be a a lesson to them in trying to be as as thoughtful and careful as possible when presenting their stuff because you know the internet flattens it did flattens things out like in a way that can be hard to walk back absolutely and netflix are making a loss at the moment i think or at least their profits are definitely in the past couple of quarters have kind of gone down and i think it's this weird mm. thing where i think particularly in terms of lockdown um because there was so much there was a big push to get so much other kind of content that would have been live streaming and online. So I think weirdly they didn't actually capitalize on what could have been the monopoly. You know, it's not like Disney plus that launched and did like an an introductory deal and that so many people snapped up. They weren't like, oh, well, you know, Netflix has an awful lot of children's stuff. And particularly in the UK, more children are watching children's Netflix programming than they are CBBC, for example, and CBBS. Mm. But it's it's just interesting because you know you were saying there 
and I'm, I'm more aware of it week on week. It's, I, I feel sometimes without meaning to, all we end up talking about is Netflix and not because mm. we, it, 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 there's just no way of getting around that it's a behemoth, right? Mm. And I think in the next few years, it's really going to be a kind of crunch point for Netflix. I think the Netflix bubble is going to burst soon because, mm. because it's things like, you know, it's kind of too big. Like you can see how these sorts of mistakes start to happen when there's not a kind of unity and there is just this sort of push to to grow without any kind mm. of recompense. And, and the kind of, and I know we're going to be talking about this in in the main, main uh, subject of this episode, but this kind of very sort of, I don't know, split and often hypocritical appearance that Netflix has in terms of thinking just recently about Lily Wachowski um, mm. doing that really lovely sort of mini video essay about The Matrix and saying like, yeah, it is actually a trans piece of filmmaking, but from a closeted perspective, and I understand this about myself now. And, you know, I didn't intend for it to be a trans film because I wasn't kind of aware of what that was, but it's like from a place of gender dysphoria and, um, you know, that the red pill is actually estrogen because that was the colour of the mm -hmm. pill really at the time. And there was that all that stuff kind of like going on, which is just like, mm, well, chef's kiss, beautiful in terms of, you know, <laughs> men's rights movement might want to, <laughs> well, they need to rethink everything, but particularly that symbolism. Anyway. But also someone really cynically pointed out on Twitter and somehow it had sort of, it, you know, leaked out of my very sieve-like brain. But Netflix cancelled Sense8. Mm. You know, and like, I mean, which is truly unique, radical, bold, trans show. And in terms of making you know but we have to make several more series of the crown mm. <laughs> which is the most expensive netflix or at least it was at least the first season was the most expensive thing netflix had done to date so yeah ugh. netflix come on guys <laughs> regroup <laughs> Uh, yeah, but that, that uh, you speaking there about Netflix cancellations takes us to our, our final story, which will then take us into the main topic, which was the story that Patriot Act, the kind of late night sort of talk show thing, informational show by, starring Hassan Minaj, was cancelled this week after six seasons, which were produced over the last two years, which is a strange thing to think about, because mm. when people said, oh, it's been cancelled after six seasons, I thought, oh my god, has it been on that long? Then I realised, all oh, right, they, they do like a bunch of couple, a year, so that makes sense. Yeah. I, I was worried that I'd completely lost track of how time worked. But that was... Uh, on the one hand, you know, it, it's sad because that was a show that tackled a lot of very serious subjects in a way that was very entertaining and very accessible you know uh, and which genuinely made news you know sort of when they they did the episode that got banned in saudi arabia and things like that you know they were it was a show that seemed very willing to go and like tackle big subjects even if it would potentially cause trouble for their their corporate benefactors in some way or another but at the same time a lot of stories came out afterwards and these had kind of been in the ether for a while that the environment at Patriot Act was kind of toxic. It wasn't a great work environment. People were often, you know, kind of miserable whilst working there and were treated very badly. And so there was this kind of like, there, there, it, for, for me, as someone who had seen some of those stories before and seeing them kind of like crop up again, 
it was a kind of like a very bittersweet thing where you kind of think, oh, it was nice that this show existed and that it was tackling these big subjects. Would have been nicer if the people making it had, you know, felt appreciated and felt like they were having like a decent life out of doing it. Oh, I mean, it was a double gut punch for me because, of course, I am a fan of Patriot Act, Ed. Of course mm. I am. It is entirely my demographic in terms of, like, politics and comedy. And I was always really taken aback by, like, the level to which it was journalistic. And I think that's the mm. thing that's also interesting about Last Week Tonight and that last week tonight has been able to do actual activism as well in terms mm. of like buying off people's debt or like releasing a book to compete or, or to, you know, to challenge, um, is it Mike Pence's het yeah. like hetero bunny book? And mm -hmm. you're like, did you not watch that episode of the Simpsons? Mike Pence, probably not, but with <laughs> Mr. It just made me think of Mr. Fuzzy bunny getting fur in places where fur had not been before. Anyway. <laughs> um, and then, I, I was not aware of the ether. And, it, and so the, the news of how poorly people, particularly women on the staff, were treated was just even more devastating because it's, again, that kind of dual... The, 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 the dual kind of... Well, it's just hypocrisy, isn't it? How can, how can you make mm. a show and the core of it is, like, so on the left and, like, outright sort of supporting like workers and marginalized people and oppressed people how can how can making that also then be part of part of that subjugation it's just because oh, every everyone wants to just enjoy a show right this is my kind of liz lemon theory you know mm. everyone just wants to enjoy a sandwich everyone just wants to watch a show and and not even have to think about whether people were treated well on it or not and I think it's been interesting over, ever since sort of Harvey Weinstein, really, and Me Too, of, of everyone being like, oh, no, that's like the real smoke and mirrors. The real illusion is that we all get on and treat each other well. That's the mm. fantasy that we've created. Ne never mind sort of dream Hollywood. You know, we can, we can all make it look like everyone's having a great time. So I just feel so badly and and in some way complicit because then I'm like do I just have to be so so cynical watching anything now in order to try and create some kind of solidarity with the people that you know I care about the people who work on their show I don't know them but they made such an incredible cultural product that had the kind of yeah there was sort of last week tonightness about it but you know um Hassan came from the daily show so there was a big kind of but but you know he's coming from speaking from a much more like radical place and as you know um second gen immigrant and all those kind of exciting things and then also the kind of like rigor but also like commitment to like silliness and jokes that something like um Adam ruins everything has as well mm. um so just this really great combination and and now i'm just like well who's left so we've got the one the the one token woman we're allowed who's samantha b who is deserves so much better than to be a fucking token you know she is she is wonderful her show is wonderful but it's literally just her um because then we've got last week tonight um what seth myers jimmy kimmel's still going isn't he which is kind of inexplicable to me oh and ugh, he who must not be named <laughs> 
I mean, that could apply. That could apply to at least two people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, just let's not name any of them. <laughs> he, them, he, plural. That must not be named. Um, the, the Jays. The Jays. The Jays. Yes, we'll we'll go with that. And that's the general sort of late night landscape in America. But even on Netflix, I'm like, well, where's where's the sort of late night political satirical show? Because let's not forget, you know, Saudi Arabia didn't just ban the Saudi Arabia episode, they told Netflix to take it down and Netflix mm. bent to it. And in terms of what the environment is, and it's so difficult because I don't, I want, a lot of this is speculation and I think it is immensely brave and I hope it's healing for all of the people who've spoken out in terms of what they went through. And they're not said in details and there's clearly like the utmost respect for each other, but it just sounds like they were all left to just kind of cling to each other. There were some mentions of gaslighting. And these are people who were like, have, you know, were journalists working for Al Jazeera and covering like mm. conflict zones. And they're like, this is some of the worst workplace treatment I've ever had. And I'm just like, you know, the one, the one shred of kind of <laughs> hope I had, which was like, oh, but when you looked out into the audience when we were still allowed to like record things live in studios and it's just this young, you know, majority people of colour audience like no my one thing because <laughs> mm. of course this is all about me um but it's just it's just horrific and you know who knows who knows if Hassan was doing his best and things just got away from him maybe it was Netflix's demands on that on them because you know it seems that HBO and John Oliver have an excellent relationship in terms of you know the production staff and because HBO have just been giving them more money and, and more, you know, license, really. Um, and a lot mm. of people were saying, like, oh, it's interesting that, you know, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but Comedy Central cancelled a sort of similar, this was a, a few years ago. There was the uh, uh, the Larry Wilmore show, Minority Report. Yes, yes, that one. That's the one. And they, they cancelled that in the run-up to the election. <laughs> and now they're like, yeah. oh. And I'm like, well, I don't think it's even... The thing about conspiracy theories is that they give too much credit to people who are genuinely just incompetent and bigoted. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's some, like, great move of, like, oh, Hassan is radicalising the children, we must we must stop, we must, you know... It's not that. It's genuinely just like, oh, we're, we're kind of done with this, with, with, with these creators of colour. Mm. You know, we've boxes ticked. Yeah, and also, like, it's in keeping with their whole thing of, like, you know a show is only really valuable for us for its first couple of years yeah. because that's when it's new, it gets the attention, that's when it's most likely to drive new subscribers. And, you know, past that point, you know, they don't really care about it too much in terms of the creative side of things. That's why something like, you know, BoJack running for six seasons or, mm. or however long it ended up running was quite a surprise. Or, like, The Crown, you can understand, because it was such a big investment and it has such a natural end point. Obviously, yeah. that's going to continue on. But, like, everything else they do, it's really, like, t one or two seasons and they're done with it. And, and that a model seems to be being applied here as well, where, I think, yeah. you know, we got a lot of great press about this in the first couple of seasons made a lot of news you know and, and you know the the clips went viral we don't really care past this point you know we want to do something else and that's not great in terms of no. you know fostering creators and actually doing anything of real artistic or you know cultural or even political value for sure and the short-termism of it like ironically in terms of 
well, a season of the Crown is very different to a season of Patriot Act. And the thing that what Patriot Act and I think last week tonight have both done, which I didn't expect, have made a very easy shift, I think, between being shown in front of a live studio audience to this kind of direct address. Um, mm. I think it's a lot to do with their incredible graphics teams because it feels like incredibly lively even without other people around. You know, Patriot Act visually always looked really stunning. Um, that kind of like mm. almost like infinity pool style graphics like all the way over. And you're right, like I hadn't even really thought of it in that way, but you know, Netflix is not a studio like other studios that seem to have interest in maintaining relationships with creators mm. and having a long-term game plan. It's all just, it's very, I mean, it's a lot of boom and that's it. I just think we're heading for, we're heading for bust. Yeah, uh, which is why you can kind of see why someone like a Martin Scorsese would like enjoy making one project for Netflix yeah. where they're kind of they they look at what Netflix do and yeah I'm obviously just projecting onto onto Scorsese here but when you think of the way that he did the Irishman with them where he took the, he made this ridiculously expensive movie they've been trying to make for years and years and the price kept going up and then you know on the one hand Netflix thinking oh this ad's prestige was you know we'll get a best picture nominee from it and, and Scorsese being like well, fine I get to my, finally make this fucking movie yeah <laughs> like, exactly it's more that it's of, over and done with it's interesting how it's almost like Netflix is like the really naughty grandparent like <laughs> the, your, your parent says no you can't have sweets but your grandparents like look I've got like the biscuit barrel and I don't yeah. think that's always the best thing to do look I really like The Irishman I think it's a I think it's a great film. I mean, my favourite Scorsese film will always be The Age of Innocence because I am that mm. girl. Um, but, you know, it was the only place that he ended up being able to do it and it kind of makes sense. And I guess really the only sort of other artist that I can think of Netflix having like any anything like a sort of longer standing relationship with is Charlie Brooker. Mm. But then he is also, you know, having an anthology series a, long, a longer running anthology series isn't that just like the epitome of short termism <laughs> because it's like mm. oh no you know it's not really each each thing is completely different so there's still that like novelty within it and yeah even Raphael Baxberg and and you know Lisa Hanavalt and Tuca and Bertie I just think Netflix have been making really bizarre decisions over the past like 12 18 months um and again it is the more minority watching and you'd think like surely Netflix has the amount of stuff that's on there as we're saying why do they need all of the majority like only the majority viewing products right because mm. sense8 could just live there it's it's theirs they made it if if you cancel it like and it's still on but i'm just like do you know what i mean it's just like there's no where else it, it feels sad because it's like oh if, it, if it's not on netflix where else is it going to go who else is going to make it mm. yeah it's it's a real terrible shame that they like and it seems so cynical as well because it's very clear like every every couple of months there'll be like like there was that story a few weeks ago about how they had bought the rights to show a load of these like uh, black sitcoms from the 90s that aren't really being shown anywhere so people will be able to watch them again and like yeah. you know a lot and they they do a lot of stuff with uh people uh, people of color who are you know creating shows there and you think oh you know that's that's great they're giving a voice to these these creators and they are you know filling this void but 
then like literally like two years later it's like ah we're done with them like we're like there is such a very kind of single thing where they are forward facing they're very much kind of like we're you know we're supporting these 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 voices they're often marginalized we're trying to you know do something positive and then the support just isn't there in in the long term because their business model isn't really suited to it their their business model is designed not to have shows that run for a very very long time because also there isn't that promise of syndication for them as well which is was kind of the thing that always got networks to commit to shows that maybe weren't the most popular but you know they got awards attention they were critically well liked and there was that sense of like ah you know like we'll we'll get we'll get community to 90 episodes and then you know we can make money on the back end when it goes into syndication netflix doesn't really have that because you know other than their episodes of arrested development i don't think there is anything of theirs that actually goes out into the broad world and gets shown on regular telly Mm. so there isn't that desire for them to keep a show around for years and years and years they really only have that short window and that doesn't that only really works for like projects and creators who are interested in a short-term fix it doesn't really help if you want someone who's like you know i have something that i genuinely want to say and you know as well in terms of creators of color who they abandoned you know Mm -hmm. like you have that with one day at a time yeah which was such a a beloved thing that had this like core audience people who are really passionate about it and it got all these great reviews about you know how it was presenting this you know, it took this old property and this old story and gave it this new perspective and everything like that and everyone was really excited about what it was doing and then like oh it had a couple of seasons and then it was done and it got saved by another network and it's very it's very sad to see that kind of like the, the reach that Netflix has and the potential they have and the money they have to kind of like do all of these things and they clearly have no interest in sustaining it past a few years we we've been talking a lot so i feel like we finally need to get onto the actual topic i I guess i guess the thing is is that the thing the thing is uh we're we're already sort of talking about the main topic yeah it's it's uh it's it's not such a such an impeccable segue (laughs) um because and in in terms of exactly what you're saying there ed you know it's almost like certain genres or products just don't work on Netflix because Netflix like you say will sort of experiment is always looking Mm. for like some kind of hook or some kind of novelty which is why it's like oh yeah we'll do this like flash in the pan and then that's it even if it does seem to be doing well and gathering that kind of fandom and dedication but it's the thing where it's like unfortunately it's still that ubiquity of often whiteness in terms of the number of people who'll be watching Stranger Things and mm. uh, you know it won't be as many people watching Patriot Act, but I'm like, well, you you didn't give them a chance then, did you? And in terms of like, I thought the episode about George Floyd was like incredibly powerful and timely, and that they were able to to do that and to get that out. Um, but that's the thing, and to sort of probably push us into the main topic, late night. Late night is often referred to as like an institution, right? And I and mm. I feel so conflicted in terms of like the function of satire in society like because a lot of people like to think it's i mean i can't remember how many estates were going down now the sixth after mm-hmm. journalism and julian assange <laughs> thanks <laughs> oliver stone and i and it's difficult because obviously i'm speaking as a citizen who's also a fucking clown right and <laughs> and i really respond to 
not only satire, but like political comedy. Like, I think that was the thing that Patriot Act really, really nailed was like, it was funny, but it wasn't looking to kind of, it, its main thing was to sort of respect you and inform you, even if some of the, looking back, some of the stuff was quite disappointing in terms of like COVID and, and like, and weight and things like that was quite an, an obesity and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, come on, you guys, like, where's, where's the radical stuff? But, you know, it's, it's this weird thing where you have like this certain selection of white guys who aren't democratically elected and who can just sit there for decades. Like, and, and mm. there's that tweet from an editor where he put together a supercut of all of Jay Leno's exposition of, of characters and films turning on the TV and Jay Leno is making jokes about them. It's like that mm. is enough, like he is enough of a cultural figure and a touch point that if you see him in a film making a crack about this character, you know that it's national news. It's huge. Mm. But, but yeah, yeah these, these are the guys who are like incredibly wealthy and just sort of there. And I mean, I don't know, Mindy Kaling and uh, Nisha Kanatra um, did their best with trying to sort of like like and I think Mindy Kaling is someone who is so interesting because she is like very much in like mainstream American comedy but is also that kind of she's very aware of what she brings to it and how she's different from it but she also loves it which is you know why she mm. you know, her stuff about like rom-coms is really interesting because she is like well you need more diversity but the format's actually fine <laughs> you know it's not like mm. oh we need something like radically different it's just like no we just need we need these people in these but it's the same stories, right? Which is, is kind of interesting. And again, brings me back to Fatal Affair. <laughs> is it progressive? I don't know. Did I like it? Yes, I did. Um, is it good? No. <laughs> but uh, but Late Night is is such an interesting one because number one, Emma Thompson's just amazing and I want to wear all of the outfits, just basically a mix between her and um, Gillian Anderson in sex education, mm. I hasten to add, rather than The Crown. And two, it... it can't really decide i think it's trying to do too much at once and i think it's because there is so much to be to that the late night needs a sort of reckoning about i mean there's little things that are sort of lovely like i think seth myers is just this interesting sort of intellectual everyman because he's quite he's quite casual in his delivery in a way or quite warm in his delivery mm. Um, and, you know, him explaining how his wife gave birth in the lobby, you know, that's been viewed however many million times and that he thanks the EMTs and, and all of the staff and, and how amazing his wife is. I'm like, on one level, I'm like, this is a very lovely, heartwarming story. On another level, I'm like, why are you telling this to the nation <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> on your broadcast television show? I don't know. I mean, it fills up a few minutes. It's an incredible story. And, you know, you you, you didn't need to write it. You can't write it and you didn't need to. And then Colbert is interesting as well because he's obviously made this shift from playing that character who, I can't remember which comedian was talking about it recently, but was like, when Colbert was doing the character, they were just like, haha, yes, this is funny. But they didn't understand that he was lampooning and that the right doesn't really get irony. They're just mm -hmm. like, we agree with this. And I've seen this in terms of like various different audiences with the pub landlord in the UK. Like Al Murray. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Like Al Murray is like a, a descendant of a, I think he's like vague aristocracy, had like a stunningly good like history degree. Like he is a smart fucking man. And the pub landlord is an incredible caricature. But the problem is when you're playing to audiences with people who do fear the euro, 
I mean, I'm just thinking about mm. when I saw him years ago and, like, there's this giant Euro, you know, that plays very differently in the South, like, the Central South, as opposed to an Edinburgh Fringe audience, you know? Mm. And so it's interesting that Colbert's made that switch and he's not really playing the character Stephen Colbert, he's playing Stephen Colbert or maybe, you know, the character known as Stephen Colbert for tax purposes. All right, Lorraine. <laughs> and it's... And again, the thing is, US late night absolutely dominates the world like the 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 most that we've had in the uk i mean it's not even really like late night's very different it's much more like friendly and magazine sort of shows like graham norton jonathan ross back in the day mm. you know parkinson i think but it was more of a sort of like is a chat show rather than our purpose here is to entertain you and lampoon like it's you know parkinson wasn't topical comedy but he's the closest that we have to someone like Jay Leno, really. Mm, or like, um, oh, what was Dick Cavett? Was he the yes. guy who was like used to do like oh. really long in long interviews? Yeah, Dick Cavett. What a what a beautiful voice that man had. That's what I always think. I'm like, oh, so silky smooth. But yeah, something like that. And then you look at someone like, you know, David Letterman, and but then you you know Conan O'Brien, and it's just like, look at all this lovely this list of white men that I'm <laughs> reading out, you know. And again, in the UK, like in terms of satire, I think because of the BBC and there's been more topical comedy, you know, and, and again, it's sort of the same lot. It's things like Dead Ringers and Have I Got News For You? And again, a lot of people are like, mm, there's, there's sort of, there's kind of lampooning everyone and then there's also, you know, being so firmly in the centre and probably... <laughs> you know, with the threat of Dominic Cummings coming round if you don't make another joke about Corbyn. I don't know. Those are entirely my thoughts. <laughs> my mm. views and opinions and no one else's. But there's not really that sort of combination that the US hit on, which is, hello, I am a friendly face and I'm going to be incredibly cheeky for the next, you know, however many minutes. And, like, I guess it varies from show to show, whether it's every night or whether it's just, like, over the weekend, but you could, I guess, they're not really trying to pit up against each other and... Um, oh, it's just fascinating. Because, again, I don't think US late night is, like, satire. And, again, I keep plugging him because I think he's so brilliant. Seth Simons, the independent comedy journalist, um, did an amazing piece on late night and, and the state of it. And, you know, Trevor Noah just now and these kind of weird sort of ricochets. And the idea is that, you know, in comedy, you sort of have to believe in something, at least. And mm. it's just this very strange, like, oh, look how much ice cream there is in Nancy Pelosi's freezer. <laughs> like, I think it was a bit that Seth Meyers did. Um, and you're just like, you can't really make head or tail of this. And and again, like, the, the coronavirus has been interesting for... And I, I think it's only last week, tonight, and Patriot Act that have tried to even have anything close to producing a a set right you know we we mm. know we know they're both at home but it doesn't look like either of them are at home whereas <laughs> every fucker can see seth myers's lockdown haircut and his very tasteful like fireplace in their you know their giant <laughs> giant houses somewhere out in the state or you know and as someone who's very comfortably off and middle class myself that doesn't mean that 
you wanting to fight on behalf of other people is invalidated. You just actually have to fight on behalf of other people. <laughs> mm. One of the things I find really interesting about late night in general, but particularly over the last couple of months, is that it's on one hand, you know, like like you mentioned earlier, it's it's a real institution. It's a venerable thing. It's as in terms of like the forms of television show that america has produced it's the one it's one of the ones that's been around the longest you know the tonight show which wasn't the first late night show or the first talk show but was is is the longest that's currently still around um that started in 1954 and you know obviously the the hosts have changed over time but the essential format of the show has remained largely the same but it is also the one of the ones that's like the most reactive because it is topical you know they are making jokes about the news of the day there is you know elements of satire to it although as you said like there is that kind of like we make fun of everyone kind of like yeah. thing to it which um in some cases can be i think incredibly harmful because you you're equating two sides who are maybe not the same you know yeah um, yeah 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 there's all, all sides, yeah. <laughs> you can't criticise yeah. the president for saying there's great people on both sides and then essentially do the same, like, if your humour functions along those that line as well. Mm. And But it's also the one that particularly, you know, since uh, the US went, particularly like New York, you know, where a bunch of them are based, and, and California where a bunch of those shows are based, once they went into lockdown in March, those have been the ones that you have seen most kind of starkly embody the changes that covid puts in because as you say they can't film in studios or if they are in studios they can't perform with an audience they have to adapt to the new reality of what it takes to make a tv show in the era of coronavirus in a way that a lot of shows haven't you know like there have been shows that have done you know specials over zoom like uh, i talked like several weeks ago about um mythic quest which did a really fun Mm. episode in in quarantine but most shows haven't quite reached that point yet because they haven't had to start making new shows or new seasons. You know, most shows have episodes banked and they'll just have to make new ones at some point. Whereas all of these shows, you know, Last Week Tonight, The Tonight Show, Late Night, uh, Conan's Show, all of these shows, they all have to keep making episodes and they have all had to adapt to this, like, yeah. at-home shooting. And I found it really fascinating seeing these shows like i'm at best like a casual um watcher of late night usually but i've really enjoyed like dipping into all these different shows over the last couple of months and seeing how they react to suddenly this weird leveling where they're all in their home or they're in they have reduced resources and as you know there was a um there was a article i think it was in the the new york times maybe months ago at this point where they were talking to people who were involved in making these late night shows and they're all talking about the difficulty of, of adjusting to shooting in their home and how they're all being constantly made fun of by YouTubers because none of them had like yeah. proper lighting for, for, for recording directly to camera and like they were all having to scramble to get hold of material and things like that to, to make a show that looked professional and how they all ended up looking way worse than the average like YouTuber show looks and it, I think it has been really interesting seeing just how much these behemoths of of late night have had to switch to the much more humble thing of like yeah we're kind of recording in a spare room of the house and but we still have to make jokes and we have to adapt to the fact that there's yeah. no audience there to laugh at them and things like that and it has been for me a really fascinating period for the art form as as these 
hosts and their crew have had to adjust to that new reality in a way that yeah a lot of other shows like dramas and sitcoms aren't really having to just yet like they'll have to adjust to it fairly soon but like for the most part most of the other kinds of shows have only really done stuff when it's been you know one-off episodes to acknowledge the fact yeah we're all working over zoom now Mm. but also i think you know particularly the last couple of years when there was such turnover in the big shows letterman retired uh jimmy fallon took over the tonight show uh colbert took over late night and you know all this stuff about how there weren't women hosting shows and then samantha b got her show uh, but also uh, to go back to netflix like chelsea handler had a show on netflix for a while which ran for a short period of time and then you know got cancelled because it was a netflix show and it had been mm-hmm. on for a year or something um michelle wolf leasing th- yes michelle wolf i forgot completely forgotten about right. michelle wolf's show <laughs> But then uh, Lily Singh, I think, is the only other woman on Late Night at the moment. She hosts, like, the show that used to be Carson Daly's, like, 2am show that's in the middle of the night. So hardly anyone knows that it exists. Yeah, up late Um, with Lily Singh, I think, isn't it? So there have been these kind of, like, movements for diversity. But the only, like, show that I can think of that is really presenting a new perspective in recent years and that has been a real breath of fresh air is Desus and Mero on Showtime mm. um, where you have two guys you know one is Jamaican American one is uh, Dominican American grew up uh, in New York both lived in the Bronx both have been fairly poor at times both have worked worked kind of like uh, regular jobs before they're able to break into comedy and you know they, they feel like they have a very distinct perspective and they are you know unabashed in their politics and even though they do kind of make fun of yeah, they, they make fun of everyone or whatever they are they tend to reserve their best jokes and their cleanest focus for making fun of republicans because they're often just the most ridiculous and they have the most fun just clowning on them uh, but, but they're like the only people i can think of who are really doing something incredibly new with the format where the show because it, it also kind of like grows out of their bodega boys podcast which is so built on just their inter their inter their interaction with each other like so much of it is just them free this free-flowing conversation they're having they're just kind of like bouncing off of each other and it feels so loose in a way that i feel like most late night shows kind of don't really ever achieve or even really attempt because you know it's it's a format that's been around for so long that it's very hard to kind of convince people that maybe you should try and you know be a little more kind of improvisational or fun in this bit when in fact that everything about the way those shows is made is geared towards no it's a very rigorous thing and we're producing it in a very set way yeah yeah more formulaic which is sad because you'd hope that I think sometimes when it comes to topical comedy, if you lean too much into a formula, what you're actually saying is, this is all the same. It's, this is the only way mm. it's ever going to be instead of really getting your audience to engage as citizens and as audience members. Mm. Yeah. Also, you know, you, you were talking there about the, the film Late Night as mm. well earlier. I feel like late night television talk shows have been a real fertile source for adaptations over the years and they've been something that various people have been really interested in particularly you know during the height of johnny carson where he was a real cultural institution there was that real sense that if johnny carson was making fun of you or jay leno years later if they're making fun of you like your life was irrevocably uh changed yes because my my um 
sort of overlooked fave um I'm dying up here which follows mm. stand-ups in sort of the 70s and 80s everyone's just talking about getting Carson and the whole mm. series kind of like is um put into motion by one comedian doing Carson and then does he die by suicide does he not we're not quite sure but yeah, it is that like that apex. It's like, oh my God. And and here in the UK, like we've got Live at the Apollo, which has been running for about sort of 10, 12-ish years now, I think, which is crazy. But yeah, like Carson and um and I mean just just that whole idea of like that the, what that seat of power is, what that like cultural touch point influence sway. I think the King of Comedy, which mm. is, you know, just such an excellent film in itself, but is such a great example of like film talking about tv mm. which it doesn't which doesn't do a lot but when it does it fucking knocks it out of the park like i'm just thinking of like network <laughs> and mm-hmm. the king of comedy and maybe there's a much darker version of late night out there that would be more in line with the king of comedy and i'd love to have seen something like really quite like dark and juicy like that but it's essentially it's meant to be sort of like entertainment it's sort of meant to be it's it's such a i mean i, I do still really like it and i think everyone is I think something weird happened in the edit because there's a there's a, a couple of plot holes and some bits are a bit strange. But I think just Emma Thompson is just so delightful in that role in particular as someone who's like, you know, the old guard and quite hard and learning to sort of loosen up and, and be open to uh, Mindy Kaling's character as well. Mm. I think the only, the only other thing I can think of that, like you say, kind of is a version of the late night thing that's a little darker and a bit more about the, just kind of like the dysfunction of it all is, you know, probably the king of this entire, like this like weird niche of of art about late night is the Larry Sanders show. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, which aired on HBO in the 90s and was this like huge thing for Gary Shandling and you know got great great reviews got loads of Emmys and you know had this wonderful conceit where he was meant to be kind of a second tier Mm. talk show host you know like someone who's who's famous and his ratings are okay but isn't like super obviously he's still existing in the shadow of of Carson at least initially when the show started Carson was still on the air and you know, it had celebrities playing themselves, so it was really very much about the behind-the-scenes world of of a, a late-night talk show and what it takes to produce that every day and the toll that it has on everyone and the dysfunction that it invariably brings into people's lives and the narcissism of the star who's totally self-involved but still wants to be loved by everyone and all this sort of stuff. Like, it, that was a show that I feel really got to the heart of what a weird institution it is to have a show that's kind of built around a single personality like that but mm. has to cater to all the people who are going to wander in and out of its doors over the course of you know all these years that it was the, the actual show within a show was on the air but also with it the the series as it existed as an hbo property yeah oh riptorn's so good in that oh yeah riptorn one of arty just one of the, the like a top 10 sitcom character for me utterly and also just the name rip torn i was thinking about him the other day because <laughs> uh, i think he was pretty i think it was limmy who shared a, a sort of thread on twitter about how rip torn was pretty much instrumental in him getting his career because rip torn came to see him at the fringe with some and and you know limmy didn't realize it was rip torn until like years later when he looked him up um but i just love that rip torn loves limmy um also is there a <laughs> name like like oxymoron or something for if you're 
your first name and your second name are kind of two variations, like synonymous. Mm, you'd hope so. <laughs> I'm sure there's probably a German word for it. Oh, yeah. Stimmt. <laughs> so we'll end this week's episode. We end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, in a way of kind of like scooping up from where we started, chatting about um, the Batman um, and then lots of comedy, Stuart Laws, if you're not following him on Twitter already, you absolutely have to. He does the most like brilliant, inspired little viral videos and and he's been sort of working on like a specifically like cinematic thread recently and I don't know if you've seen it but it's him as Michael Caine with Christopher Nolan directing him to say never in mm-hmm. and it is just hysterical and then he's been doing a few more in a kind of like the screenwriter series I like to call it where it's the screenwriter who just um my favorite one is uh, a screenwriter who realizes he's just passed the bestel test and it's about a minute of him like realizing and then like crying and then on the phone to his agent going, "Yep, yeah, I finally did it. They talk about food. <laughs> um, so yeah, Stuart Laws. Cool. I'm going to recommend a documentary series on the aforementioned and, and much hated Netflix called High Score, which is a six part documentary about the golden age of video games kind of fairly nebulously defined but basically running from the late 70s through to the mid 90s which uh, is six parts each episode looks at a different general theme but also it's kind of chronological so it starts off being about atari then it kind of moves into being about nintendo eventually you get to sega they focus on different series different genres and it's a really fun enjoyable overview it's narrated by charles martinet two people will probably know if they own for anything there's the voice of mario and uh, he's very fun he has a good time with some of the the line deliveries and some of the silly stuff that they do there's some good uh, visuals in it you know they, they use lots of different old 8-bit 16-bit graphics to tell past the story which is very neat and well done nice. but the thing about it that elevated it for me and made me think oh this is doing something that i hadn't expected from it because you know like you just think i'll documentary about video games it's going to be a very straightforward thing is that it makes time in most if not all episodes to focus on uh voices that are often ignored when people talk about the history of video games so there's a lot of women in it who talk about you know people women who created video games in the early days of the the genre and who obviously of the medium and who obviously you know people who played games there's uh, a trans woman called uh, becky heineman who is featured uh, several times because she won a nintendo power contest in the 90s when she was was very young and then went on to become a developer in her own right there's a segment on the creation of the john madden series of games where they talk to one of the the developers of that game in the mid 90s who was both black and gay talking about what playing madden versus a fan and then getting to be part making the series meant to him and i just really thought that was really lovely and that it really did a nice job of you know making a medium that is often perceived as very exclusionary because it often is a lot of those people who who are fans of video games are as as we've seen over the last decade not particularly keen on the notion of 
games not being made specifically for them or of people who aren't white dudes being in that space it's it's nice to have a documentary series that very explicitly says yeah like women and queer people and trans people have been part of this thing forever and they are a key part of its history and they can't be ignored or you know written out of history because they've been there the whole time and i found that to be a very nice thing to do just as part of this series that otherwise is, is you know just giving you the basics on all of this sort of stuff but you know for it to take its time to just be like hey gay people played a part in the history of video games there are gay video games out there is very nice so fuck yeah that's high that's high score it's on netflix and you know it's it's well worth your time you know six episodes 40 something hours uh, 40 something hours six <laughs> episodes 40 something minutes each and uh they're all super duper fun and there's lots of like fun little anecdotes in there about how various characters were created like the creation of pac-man coming from the craters going out and ordering a pizza removing the slices from it and thinking hey that that's a fun shape <laughs> yeah things like that which are, are just kind of like they're just nice just nice things if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me. 